so tonight, we are talking about one of the claims of Jesus from the Gospel of John. Um, there are these numerous I am sayings where Jesus says, I am this, I am that. Um, and we're going to look at one of those tonight because the real Jesus, the real Jesus wanted people to know who he was and often the claims that he makes are rooted in the story that's been building up to this point. It is helpful and important to think about the Bible not just as a bunch of disconnected little stories, but as one story that is actually connected. Now, I know the girls in the freshman girls' Bible study have been going through a thing called the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, which is actually a great way to see that all of the little stories are part of a big, grand story that God is telling and to really understand what Jesus is claiming about himself, you have to understand the story, and particularly this way the story has, has been told up to this point. The way the story that God is telling has been told up to this point. I know sometimes people say, well, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. And I think people that make that statement, sometimes they don't know any better. Because Jesus claims to be God in so many ways. But most of those ways, you really have to understand the story and you have to understand what he's saying. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, there's a lot to that claim. And we're going to explore that tonight. But why don't we look first uh, at the scripture where this story comes. Now, to set up the context, in John, this is right after Jesus has fed 5,000 people. There's a couple times where he feeds a large number of people. This is one of those. And then the crowd tries to make him king by force, which isn't actually that weird of a thing because the emperors were famous for giving bread to the people. Feeding the people was often the way you got um, secured your, uh, your office, your political office. Um, and so they try to do that. Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with that. So he slips away. Um, he actually, you know, is like going across... The, this is the whole story where he's walking on the water, on the sea there, and then eventually the crowd figures out that he's gotten to the other side of the lake, and they go around to find him. So we pick up the story after Jesus has fed them, and then he kind of slipped away, and then they've now got to the other side of the lake, the crowd has, and they found Jesus. And this is the way the story goes, starting at verse 25 in John chapter 6, if you're following along. When they found him, that means the crowd, when they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. And then they quote the Old Testament. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, 
Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's funny, you know, a lot of us in our day would grumble at the stuff He said after that. But they're grumbling at that, and they didn't even hear what He said after that. Verse 42, they said, is this not Jesus? We know this guy. It's the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and then again he quotes from the Old Testament, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to Me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue. In Capernaum. It's interesting, somewhere along the line, this conversation has moved to the synagogue, and it's repeating not only what he said there, but what he continued to say in the synagogue. That's what's going on here. And then verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where He was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. So sometimes we're used to thinking of the disciples as the twelve. Here, disciples means the big group. The twelve are the twelve that we sometimes call the apostles and disciples. But Jesus asked the twelve, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a long, somewhat complex passage, and yet over and over again, you insist that Jesus is the bread of life that we need. We pray now as we hear not only the reading, but the preaching of your Word, that we would feed on him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christ claims to be the bread of life. He says it all through this passage. And yet, regularly in this passage, the people are somewhat confused about what he's talking about. And one of the reasons they're confused is they failed to understand the significance, the full significance of bread And what God has been teaching His people for thousands and thousands of years about bread, and particularly about the way God wants to feed His people. See, God has been teaching His people for a long time that He longs to feed them. Let's think about the role of bread and eating in the Bible story just for a few minutes, because I really want you to understand this. Jesus doesn't just get up out of the blue and say this. He doesn't just say this because he just fed them and so he's got to like make it spiritual somehow. No, he's tying in to something that God has been teaching his people from the very beginning of the creation, from the very beginning of relationship. God has been teaching his people that he wants to feed them. Again, God creates mankind puts them in a garden, and it's filled with good food. And the story in Genesis makes sure you understand that. Now, one of the things that's interesting to note about this, I believe, there are very good reasons to believe, that Moses wrote the five books. I know not all of you will be taught that in your Bible classes. We should get coffee and talk about that. Because I think there's good reasons to believe that Moses wrote those five books. And he wrote those five books while Israel was wandering in the desert for 40 years. One of the things that you find when you look at these stories is that they regularly contrast stories of the Egyptians and the other peoples around there that Israel would have come into contact with. In other words, the things that are emphasized regularly are in contrast to the other creation stories. I know sometimes people think that that the Bible borrows from the other creation stories. It's actually just the other way around. I believe that what God did, His people were reminded of. And there were other peoples that had somewhat skewed versions of what happened. It's in the collective memory of the human race. 
But what the Bible says is that God created his people, put them in a garden filled with good food, and told them, you're to eat, except not of that tree. Now, the interesting thing is, most of the Canaanite myths, the myths of the other peoples in the area where Israel was wandering around, those myths regularly describe the gods, or God, usually the gods, as making human beings to be food for the gods. It's a common feature in all of these Canaanite creation myths that the gods created human beings to be food. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. God created mankind, put them in a garden filled with food. The idea of having to work and the ground being difficult to work and being able to produce food from, that comes after the fall. God created mankind and put them in a good garden filled with good food. But mankind did not eat what God had served. And it's interesting to think about, you know, sometimes we use these religious words like sin and grace, but think of the story this way. God created human beings to feed them with his goodness. And feeding always in the Bible is significant because eating is a way that you enjoy intimacy with people. So if you want to understand what God made human beings for, he didn't just create them to be his little worker bees and to run around and do his bidding. He created them so that he could feed them, so that he could have an intimate relationship with them. And yet mankind did not eat what was on the menu. The Bible says that Adam and Eve looked at this one tree, and even though God had said, you're not to eat of this tree, it looked pleasing to the eye and good for food, and they ate it. So what's wrong with humanity is that we didn't eat what God had given us. We decided to go our own way, to provide for ourselves. And yet, as as difficult as that is, God does not give up on his people. And as you see the story progressing, we'll pick it up after Israel has been delivered from bondage in Egypt. They're wandering around the desert and they regularly are complaining to God, saying things like, why did you bring us out into this desert? Why did you deliver us, put us in a desert, now you're going to starve us? And what does God do in answer to this complaining? He doesn't say, I'm done with you, miserable ingrates, the way maybe some of your parents wanted to do when you complained about what they serve for food. Anybody ever have big battles over what you're going to eat? And, you know, you can't get up from the table until you eat that one pea. You know, I remember one of our kids, you know, we made him eat one pea, and he literally, like, vomited all over everything. It's like, that wasn't really worth it. wasn't really worth it. But it can be so frustrating to parents when the kids don't eat what's served. But what does God do? God feeds his people in spite of their grumbling. In Exodus, basically it says this in Exodus 16, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. And what you would expect next is, and I'm done with them. But what happens? He says, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? In Hebrew, what is it is manna. 
Literally, manna. What is it? That's, they don't even know. What is it? It's the bread from heaven that God has given you to feed you in spite of your grumbling. Now, what's interesting is they're not allowed to stockpile this bread because God even then is teaching them, I want you to be dependent upon me. This relationship is such that I will be your God. You will be my people. And one of the ways you live that out is by eating what God has served. But they weren't allowed to stockpile it so that they didn't need God. I think sometimes... You know, people almost seem to think that the, the, more you, the longer you live as a Christian and maybe the more good you get at spiritual disciplines, like the less you'll really need God. And you'll finally sort of grow beyond being dependent upon Him and clinging to Him. That's actually not the case. God made us to be in this kind of intimate relationship with Him where we would cling to Him for our very life. It's what you were made for, right? Now, God gives them this food. And then later in Deuteronomy 8, God says that basically I made you hungry so that I could feed you so that you would learn that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here in Deuteronomy 8, you're seeing this connection between the word and the, and the bread. And it actually comes up in our section in John 6 as Jesus is talking about this. It came up in our call to worship. In Isaiah 55, regularly the Bible merges these two images of eating and bread and listening to the Word. It's interesting. Even Jeremiah um, has this imagery when he talks about um, the Word. He, he basically writes it on a scroll, the Word, and then he eats it. And then it's bitter in his stomach. The idea of God's Word being something not just that you listen to, but it actually goes into you and nourishes you, that you ingest it, is already going on here in Deuteronomy. It continues in Isaiah, and Jesus picks up on it here. So he's not just talking about eating his flesh in a mystical way. It's connected to listening to his word and abiding in his word, right? Then the story goes on. Bread is at the heart of Israel's worship, too. Do you know this, that in the Ark of the Covenant goes the Ten Commandments, some other things, but one of the things that goes in there is some bread, some of this manna, some of this, what is it? And actually the Bible says that they put that bread in there so that they would be reminded in their worship that God is faithful and he's the one who has fed them. And every Sabbath, every week in worship at the temple, one of the things that was there were 12 loaves of bread. There's in, in the book of Leviticus, there are these specific instructions. The priests were to bake 12 loaves of bread. They were to put these 12 loaves of bread on this table of pure gold. And then the priests were to feast on this bread before the Lord. Do you see what's being symbolized? When, when Adam and Eve sinned, refused to eat what was given to them, they were kicked out of the garden. The fellowship with God, this intimate relationship they were made for, was broken. But God is saying in this aspect of worship, eating these loaves of bread in the presence of God in the temple, God is committed to restoring this kind of access, this kind of intimacy. Christianity is not just about getting a, a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just about what happens after you die. It's about 
restoring this relational intimacy where you can sit down and eat with God. And therefore, in the middle of worship, it wasn't just all about prayers, it was about eating, feasting in the very presence of God. And the Bible says that all of those who come to Jesus are a new priesthood. And we regularly gather and we eat. You see, Jesus, when he talks about being the bread of heaven, what he's saying is, I am the fulfillment of everything that God has been teaching about bread. Jesus was born literally in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. I don't know if you know, a manger is where you put the hay that the animals eat. So Jesus, the bread of heaven, was born in a feeding trough. And he was born in a city named Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Jesus, the bread of heaven, was born in a feeding trough in the house of bread, the city called the house of bread. And here, after feeding 5,000 people in John chapter 6, he stands up and he declares, I am the true bread from heaven. And he says, come and eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not just a few crumbs. God feeds us the true bread from heaven. Jesus says he comes to give his life for the world. To give life to the world. And we celebrate that in the Christian tradition, in Christian church. We celebrate this regularly. Some churches every week. Some churches less regularly. But we celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper. Or sometimes it's called communion. Actually, that's an interest, both of those words are really interesting. Because communion reminds us that eating has always been about fellowship and connecting together. The Lord's Supper refers us back to the night that Jesus was betrayed and he gathered his disciples together and they ate this Passover meal. And then he said, this is my body broken for you as he broke the bread. This is my blood shed for you, the blood of the new covenant. And Paul, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians that whenever we eat this meal, he says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Think about this. This meal that we celebrate regularly in the Christian church connects the past, the present, and the future. It all gets tied together in this eating. We proclaim in the now, right now, Jesus' death. Whenever we eat, we look back to his death, but we proclaim it now, and we look forward to the day when we are going to sit down with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb that the book of Revelation talks about. All of history is heading to a great feast. And so the question for every one of us is, will we eat what God is offering? And Jesus actually gets into that some of that here. Not everybody eats what's being offered. In some ways you could say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What it means to be a Christian is to eat what God's offered. To have Jesus' body and blood on the menu. There's this poet, um, R.S. Thomas. I love uh, what he says. Um, he says this in one, one of his writings. There are other people in the world sitting at table, contented, though the broken body and the shed blood are not on the menu. 
My prayer is for myself and for you that we would never be contented sitting down at table eating unless the broken body and shed blood of Christ are on the menu. Because He is the true bread. Now if He's the true bread, what does this mean? Let's draw out a few implications. But even as you begin to think about what does this mean, you look at this passage, you realize these people had to come up with new categories. It's almost comical. Like they're talking about, are are you Moses? Are you kind of like Moses? Because Moses gave us this bread. That's why we love Moses. Yay, Moses. Moses is our guy. He gave us bread from heaven. That's kind of their attitude, right? And Jesus is like, you kind of missed the point of the story. Moses didn't give you the bread. God gave you the bread through Moses. Moses said as much in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Okay? But not only that, that bread was pointing to me. But if you want to begin to understand who the real Jesus is, Jesus says, you need new categories. You need new categories. The old categories don't work anymore. And these people have no concept for God coming down in human flesh and then saying, I'm going to give you my flesh for your life. They don't even know how to make sense of that. In some ways, you know, there is what we call the motif of misunderstanding that goes through the Gospels. The disciples are always like clueless, aren't they? And sometimes you can sort of be like, well, if I'd been there, I would have figured it out. I mean, it's obvious what he's saying. No, it's not obvious what he's saying. Until Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples were clueless. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, they had to go back and rethink everything. And they had to come up with new categories. They did. Encounter with Jesus drives us to new categories of understanding reality. Requires new categories. New categories like fully God and fully man. You know, that's not something that people just sort of made up. It's something that the disciples were driven to after Jesus was raised from the dead, they had no other way to explain what happened. And I'll talk more about this in two weeks when I talk about the resurrection. But that's the understanding. Fully God, fully man. Okay? <laughs> that's a whole new category. Full of grace and truth. That's how John's Gospel says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's hard to put those two things together. You need a new category. How about this one? No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. For some people, be like, whoa, that's not how I understood salvation to work. I thought you just pray a prayer in your heart and then you unlock the key of salvation and it's all kind of in your control. Jesus, here in John chapter 6, wants to say, no, you might need some new categories. You need to eat. But the only way you're going to eat is if the Father draws you. And if the Father draws you, you will come and you will eat. Like that poem that we read. Love, love said sit down and eat. And, and even he's, you know, the, 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 the George Herbert is saying, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to eat. Love says sit down and eat. Well, no, let me serve you then. No, you sit and eat. And he finally says, so I did. Again, we sing it in that hymn by Isaac Watts, how sweet and awful. Lord, why was I 
made to sit at this feast when others make a bad choice and don't sit and don't eat. Well, as long as it's still today, don't harden your heart. Come and eat the bread of life. It might take new categories for you. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not the next Moses. You have to have new categories to understand who the real Jesus is. You know, it's interesting. In the early days of Christianity, um, before Christianity came on the scene, the Jews in particular were accustomed, and, and the Greeks as well, to thinking about basically two races. For the Jews, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. They don't think of races like the way we do now in our more, I guess, scientific way of trying to figure this out, though it seems that some of the ways we've decided about the races, even that has come under various kind of challenges. Okay, I don't want to get into all that. But in the early days, they had Jews and they had Gentiles. Okay? And early on, the, the, those outside of Christianity were trying to figure out where the Christians fit in that category. At least initially, the Romans thought of them as a sect or a subset of Jews. And after a while, they realized, no, they actually have some pretty significant differences with Jews. And actually, early on, Christians were regarded as a third race. Uh, it's fascinating. You read some of the letters of Romans trying to make sense of who the Christians are. And, and they'll say things like, we, we can't make sense of these people. They share everything except their marriage bed. We don't share our food with each other, but we share our bed with everybody. But these Christians... I don't know what to make of them. Do you, know, you know actually most of the Christians in the early days that were killed for being Christians, you know what the official charge against them was? Atheism. Atheism. Because they didn't believe in the whole pantheon of gods. They were atheists. They couldn't make sense of them with their categories. They don't believe in the pantheon of gods, so they must be atheists. Now they believe in God, Jesus, and one of the early emperors, write, or one of the early governors, writes to, to Pliny the emperor and says, um, to, or sorry, writes to the emperor. Pliny is the governor and writes to the emperor and says, you know, these Christians they gather together and they sing a hymn to Christ as God. Whoa, yeah, new categories. How we live as Christians, I think we can learn a lot from this. If you're somebody who's a Christian, think about. Think about how you can even live in a way that will blow people's categories up a little bit. You know, it's election night. And people are always trying to say, well, what, what is Christianity? Does it put you, you know, Democrat, Republican? I, Christianity shouldn't fit neatly into any categories. should make new categories. If you're a Christian, you should strive to live in such a way that people can't quite figure you out. Because if you follow Jesus... Nobody could quite figure him out either. So, blowing up categories. That's what Jesus is about here, right? He says, I'm the true bread. And if I'm the true bread, it changes how you think about the work God requires. I love verse 27, 28, 29 in this section. What is the work God requires? That's one of the most important questions you could ever ask. And this answer that Jesus gives is probably not the answer that anybody would expect. I... I, I would almost bet you that most people who call themselves Christians, if you ask them, what is the work that God requires? 
they would give a very different answer than the answer Jesus gives here. Honestly. It's why I fear so many people are, are caught in this bondage of thinking they have to impress God by doing things. Jesus says the work God requires is to believe on the one he sent. It's worth reflecting on and thinking about. Jesus is the true bread. Don't settle for other breads that don't fill you up, he says. Right? And Jesus is not just a spice that you add to your life. He's the bread of life. He's the basic staple that nourishes you. Don't try to use Jesus as a means to an end or trying to have a little bit of Jesus to sort of spice up your life or to maybe keep your life from getting out of control, as it may be. A Christian, as I said, is one who eats what God serves. There's one other thing I want to point out about Jesus from this passage. Jesus is the bread of heaven. Christians are those who eat what is being served. But Jesus is the one who dries away his fans and frustrates his own disciples. It's running all through this passage, isn't it? He has the crowds. He fed 5,000 people. They followed him all the way to the other side of the lake. And then he gets up and he tells them basically stuff until they're driven away. His goal is bigger than just having followers. Now, following Jesus isn't a bad thing. To start, how are you going to figure out who Jesus is if you're not hanging around and figuring out, hearing what he's like, okay? But eventually, eventually, Jesus wants to draw you deeper into this dependence. It's what the idea of bread is all about. And one of the ways that he tends to do that is by calling people to submit and to trust him, even beyond even beyond what makes perfect sense to them. It doesn't mean that Christianity is saying, leave your brain at the door. But Christianity is saying, come, taste, and eat. Jesus knows their problem is not just a lack of understanding. It's a refusal to trust. And one of the ways that he can sometimes push that issue is to say things that are hard. Say things that maybe we don't even like. You know, St. Augustine is, is quoted one time as saying that if you accept what you like in the Gospels and you reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, it's yourself. Sometimes Jesus says frustrating, difficult things, and we were like, well, I don't really like that. I won't let Jesus say that. He can't say that. Be careful. You don't get to fashion your own Jesus. You don't get to pick and choose among what he said. And some of these hard things are actually really important things. They're ways that he pursues us and says, I'm not just interested in you picking and choosing which things you like and sort of you know, tattooing it on yourself. I want you to eat whatever I say. Because I have hard things to say, but they're life-giving things that you need to hear. And you need to believe. And Jesus teaches hard things that confuse his disciples. You know, I, I, I really like the end of this because I feel like 
as long as I've been following Jesus, sometimes he really frustrates me. Sometimes I don't understand. Sometimes I'm like, God, I don't know why you don't do this and why you do that. Why would you let this person stand up and speak on your behalf? It makes it so much more difficult for people to take you seriously. Why would you let this person do that? It seems like it would be such a barrier to people coming to understand your love. And I have those kind of experiences all the time. And I regularly find comfort in the fact that these disciples want to leave Jesus because he doesn't operate according to their agenda. And I love this honest confession of Peter. Jesus says, do you want to leave me too? And what I hear Peter saying here is, yeah, we kind of do. But where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. We've tasted them. We know them. We believe you. We don't understand what the heck you're doing sometimes. If that's what you feel like, that's what disciples feel like. A very wise man who's went on to be with the Lord now said to me one time, living by faith usually feels like death. A lot of people are trying to follow Jesus and wonder why they don't feel very much. It may be because you're editing out all the things that are going to make you feel like death. <laughs> and you don't really need him. You're just kind of using him as a spice. Oh, I like that. I'll take that. I like that over there. I'll take that. Jesus says hard things because he wants you to eat and drink what you need for life. You need him, all of him, not just part of him. The real Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Let's pray together.